0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. Augustine of Hippo is one of the fathers of Western Christianity, a doctor of the Church. No theologian was more widely revered in medieval Europe, and his thought continues to be foundational in both the Roman Catholic and Protestant traditions. But Augustine wasn't European and only half Roman, and his Christianity was as blended as his ethnic heritage. What difference might that cultural and religious blending have made in the life and thought of Augustine? To answer this question, Husta Gonzalez applies an insight from Latin American theology, the concept of the mestizo, one who combines and inhabits two backgrounds. The result is an insightful and fresh analysis of Augustine that anchors the cerebral, patristic writer in the gritty, surprisingly familiar realities of the diverse Roman world. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, and with us today is Dr. Justo Gonzalez, church historian, historical theologian, and author of The Mestizo Augustine, A Theologian Between Two Cultures. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Gonzalez. So to begin, what is a Mestizo? What resources from history and culture are you drawing on for the concept of Mestizaje?
1: Well, the word Mestizo comes from a Latin word, actually. not ancient Latin, but a late Latin word that means uh, mixed. And it was a Spanish form that was used, still is used in Latin America, uh, to Referred to a person who is uh, of mixed blood, usually half Indian and half European. Uh, So it was originally used in a very pejorative sense. Um, The mestizo was uh, not quite a Spaniard, not quite a. a, 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 Well, even if if, the children of a Spaniard in Latin America were still called. In other words, there were people who are uh, native, but they are really from Spain. The people who are mixed uh, with an Indian are called, were called mestizos. And that was really a a very pejorative term, and it meant that somehow you did not have the culture, you did not have the background, and you did not have the ability, and you were always going to be subjected to being a second-class citizen. Now, that began changing at some point later. Uh, especially in Mexico uh, by the mid-19th century, and by uh, the beginning of, a, of the 20th century it was clear that uh, the, the word was beginning to, be, to become a sign of uh, identity uh, for Mexican uh, reality, and from there it spread, it spread out to other places in Latin America. Now in its original use it had nothing to do with religion obviously uh, except that in many cases mestizos were not allowed to have any of the higher positions in the church but uh, originally it had nothing to do with religion except that and it was later actually in the the mid 20th century that uh, it began being used in that sense and actually In many ways, not so much in Latin America originally, as among the Latino population in the U.S. Now, I don't know if that that, uh, deals with what you're asking about, but if you want to follow more up on that, I'm glad to say more about it.
0: (laughs) Why is the concept of mestizaje and the experience of a mestizo useful for understanding the mixing or combination of cultures more generally? So how are you applying these terms beyond their context in colonial and post-colonial Latin America in both cultural and religious ways?
1: Yeah, well, let me begin by saying that uh, uh, the ap- application of the notion of mestizaje uh, to uh, issues of theology and so on is not at all uh, my creation. Uh, the, the, the person who began breaking this word in uh, was a... Mexican-American Catholic priest by the name of Julio Elizondo who uh, had the experience of living. He was born in Texas. He always lived in Texas. But in Texas, he was constantly called a Mexican. And he was just eager to go to Mexico and be home. Well, when he got to Mexico, he discovered that he was a Yankee, a gringo. And so uh, it is that uh, being of both and being of neither that is the basic nature of mestizaje. Now, that was just his personal experience. Then I think he drew from two sources. One is that there was a uh, very well-known philosopher in Mexico who, in order to uh, refute the notions that were beginning to be common in the early 20th century and eventually led to even in Nazism and all that, the notion that uh, somehow uh, there's a purity of race and there's a superior race that somehow uh, is moving the world forward, Uh, this man said that that's not true, that actually the greatest movements in the world come uh, precisely from uh, mixed cultures and and mixed realities, and and that the world is really moving towards a cosmic race, and uh, Mexico is the beginning of that. And Elizondo picked up on that, but he also picked up on the notion of Jesus as a Galilean, and a Galilean was a Jew who was not a real Jew in many ways. From the point of view of the people in Judea, in Jerusalem and around, a Galilean was almost a Gentile. Actually, you don't remember that are called Galilee of the Gentiles. And But from the point of view of the Romans, a Galilean was a Jew. So just as with Elizondo found that from the point of view of Mexicans, he was a gringo, but from the point of view of uh, uh, Texans, he was a Mexican. Uh, uh, Jesus, in a way, was, from the point of view of the Judeans, not a very good Jew and almost a Gentile, and uh, from the point of view of the Romans, uh, a Jew. So he picked those together, and then he began reinterpreting all of the New Testament on the basis of that kind of a. Uh, of struggle, And from there on, many, many Latina and Latino theologians in the U.S., particularly, but also in, in Latin America, have picked that up and made it a, a basic uh, uh, tool for understanding their faith.
0: So let's turn to the subject of our conversation, Augustine of Hippo. What kind of ethnic or cultural mestizaje do we find in his experience?
1: Well, we know that his father was a, a Roman. His father was a... Uh, A big fish in a small pond, Uh, the town of Tagaste, where uh, Augustine grew up, was a fairly small city uh, at the borders of the empire in northern Africa, and his father had a a position there uh, representing the government. Uh, His mother, uh, we know nothing, literally, I mean, nobody ever says anything about their own heritage among ancient culture, ancient writers. But... The name of her mother, Monica, is connected to the name of a Berber goddess, an African goddess, by the name of Mon. And uh, so it is quite likely that his mother was of uh, Berber or yeah, Berber origin. We can talk a bit later about Berber and Punic and all that, but of Berber origin. Uh, his grandmother, I mean Patrick's mother made life impossible for monica when she married her father his father in other words uh, she didn't like she she probably felt and here we are sort of guessing but she probably felt that uh, by marrying uh, an african a a berber patrick was uh, uh, sort of stopping or impeding his own career in the civil service of Rome, that he was, was, was now stuck in a particular pla- the particular place where he was, and that may have been true. That's exactly that's where he remained, and that's where he died. So she made life impossible for Monica. But the other thing that's interesting is that Monica herself uh, was a Christian. Uh, Patrick Augustine's father was not, and. Uh, Monica wanted to make sure that her son was a Christian. Uh, she had difficult situations with her husband. Augustine practically says that she was verbally abused, at least verbally, perhaps more, by Patrick. And uh, But she still wanted her son, because she knew that her son was bright, she wanted her son to be able to move ahead in the world. And so she agreed with Patrick that he had to have the best possible Greek or Roman education available. But at the same time, she wanted him to be a Christian the way she was. And Christianity in North Africa was very much connected to the ancient uh, African culture that had been there before Christians arrived and even before Romans arrived. And so... A whole lot of Augustine's life, early life, is precisely somehow the, how do you manage those two. Uh, now, I think what eventually happens with, with a, a real mestizo uh, doesn't really know, well, now I am going to be this, now I am going to be that. Uh, a real mestizo just reacts to various things uh, drawing from both backgrounds and doesn't necessarily make it, make it conscious decision, well, now I'm going to be, you know, a Latin American, now I'm going to be a, a North American, or now I'm going to be Texan, now I'm going to be Mexican, whatever. Uh, so as Mestizaje takes place, it is, obviously there's distinction within the person, but that person doesn't live constantly making those decisions. I, I don't think that Augustine stopped to say, say oh, here, uh, what the Romans told me help me. But what I say is that as you study his theology and his life, you can see that at some points he has recourse to his Roman upbringing. And at some other points in his life, he has recourse to his African upbringing.
0: Can you say a little bit more about the indigenous population of Roman North Africa? You've mentioned both Punic inhabitants and Berber inhabitants. So what are the difference between the two? Because uh, as I understand it, they're not interchangeable.
1: No, they did not, but they were, uh, practically, they were in, in Augustine's time. That's a problem. <laughs> uh, the original population there um, was uh, Berber. They spoke a language that's still spoken, obviously, with a great deal of development, but it's basically uh, the what's now called Libyan, which is now, again, uh, one of the official languages of some other co- various cultures and countries in North Africa, whose official languages are not only Arabic, but also Libyan. Uh, so it, its language that still remains. Its a culture that still remains. Now, these people were conquered by the Phoenicians. <laughs> the people in the Bible are called Philistines were also Phoenicians, and they come to, uh, to North Africa, and because there's a connection between, uh, even in English there's a connection between the f- sound and the P sound, they become called the Punics, and uh, the, the Punics are, are the, the people of Phoenician origin who now come and conquered the, the Berbers and run, on, run the show uh, making use of Berber labor, or the, the, the typical kind of, of a situation you have in, a, in an imperial-colonial relationship. Then come the Romans, and they conquered the Punics. And so now you have these three tiers. But from the point of view of the Romans, everybody who was there before they were there was a Punic, by which I now mean an African. <laughs> so when uh, Augustine, for instance, says that he didn't speak Punic too well, what does that mean? Does that mean that he didn't speak the Phoenician language, or he did not speak the Libyan language? And to this day, uh, scholars are not agreed, and as you can imagine, very often even in um, Nationalism and things get mixed up with that. Uh, People in North Africa say that it was uh, the the Libyan language, and people in Spain say that it was a Punic language because the Spanish also were conquered by the Phoenicians and were part of that background. So, but basically, it is very difficult to distinguish in the writings of that time, in the Latin writers of that time, between. who's a, a, who descends from the Phoenicians or who descends from the Berbers. They're all, from the point of view of Latin-speaking people, they're all Punics.
0: In Augustine's Confessions, he tells a story from his schoolboy days, you probably recall it, of reading Virgil's Aeneid and weeping for Dido. Now, he makes a different point out of that story in the Confessions, but could his tears for Dido indicate Punic sympathies, uh, perhaps identifying her with his mother.
1: I, I think that may that's possible. That's possible. Uh, uh, he. <laughs> I am not too sure that he was ever completely uh, at home in uh, in Latin culture, and it's possible there are pl- various places where he. Uh, That comes up. uh, That that passage, the Confessions, is one of them. Uh, He claims that he does not speak Punic. But that, again, what does that mean? Does that mean that he doesn't know it at all or that he is not able to preach in it? (laughs) And that, again, relates very much to the uh, the experience of many, many Latinos Latinas in this country. They tell you, I don't speak Spanish. But by that, they don't mean that they really don't know it. What they mean is they haven't studied, they are not fluent in it, but they do understand it. And some people think that when uh, Augustine was visiting the city of Hippo and the bishop, a man by the name of Valerius, sort of tricked him into, well, tricked the church into forcing him, forcing Augustine to be ordained, part of his agenda was that Valerius himself was Greek. He spoke uh, Latin more or less, but he had a very difficult, great difficulty communicating with the native population. And he saw this man now who was very respected by then and who was able at least to communicate the population with the population. Now that's again speculation, but there, there are places like that that you see all through the history and the writings of Augustine when that comes up.
0: We usually associate Augustine with the Western Church and Roman Christianity you argue that characterization leaves out the important influence of his mother's North African Christianity on Augustine. In general terms, what traits would distinguish North African Christianity from Roman Christianity?
1: Well, first of all, uh, Roman Christianity, at least uh, the literary remains we have of it, all through the early centuries was really a, a sort of Greek, uh, a Jewish-Greek Christianity. And very slowly it's making its way into the old Latin population of Rome. So there's a, there's a, uh, what's happening in Augustine's time is precisely that for the first time, even he's not there, I mean, he's African, but, but in the fourth century in uh, Western Europe, Christianity is really being Latinized. Now, meanwhile, what's happening in in Africa from the beginning is that the conquered people um, seem to be flocking to the church. Uh, the, the real growth of the church in, in North Africa is among the non-Latin population, especially in rural areas. And uh, there has, again, been a lot of discussion as to, to what degree this was partially because Christianity became a sort of protest against uh, the Roman Empire and Romanism, Romanity, or, or whatever. Um, now, that Christianity that developed in North Africa is uh, very moralistic, very rigoristic. Uh, people are appreciated particularly by their, uh, um, their own personal piety, by, the, by their conduct, not by their position. And that's, that's also true of all of, uh, of uh, the old Berber society. Uh, people are, are have authority not by function but by action, by, by what they do and, and so on. Uh, in, in Roman Christianity that's developing, you're picking up the tr- Roman tradition of law, which obviously was the great thing of which uh, the Romans prided themselves, and... Uh, in that tradition, people's authority does not come from their behavior. It comes from their position, uh, from, their, from their official position. Now, obviously, if they misbehave, you can depose them. But the misbehavior itself does not, uh, do not, does not uh, depose them, does not declare, invalidate their authority until proper authorities unvalidate that authority. So what you have in, in North Africa is a Christianity that is uh, uh, very counter-culture, because it, the, the, the dominant culture is, uh, is Roman, who is very proud of its being different. And uh, even so, it's in North Africa that Christian Latin literature begins. You have practically nobody in, in around Rome or, or in Western Europe who is a Christian writing in Latin until the 4th century. And even then, it's not in Rome. It's, it's, the main figure is, is Ambrose, who's up in Milan. So uh, uh, Roman Latin Christianity is just beginning to develop uh, in the late 3rd, early 4th century, just before Augustine is born. And it's still taking shape as he's growing up. Now, the Christianity that he's growing up, now something has happened. Now the empire has become Christian. And that uh, that mass of Christians who had been preparing for martyrdom, who who were proud that they were against uh, the power uh, that was oppressing them against the empire and against uh, the colonial power, if you want to put it that way, now they find that the uh, the church and the empire are becoming allied and that uh, uh, Christianity no longer has that uh, counter uh, countercultural dimension, because now the dominant culture is becoming Christian. And it's at that point that you get huge seismic movements in North Africa. And basically Donatism, and by the way, uh, most of people in Tagaste, in, in Augustine's birth town, most of the natives were Donatists until very shortly before Augustine himself was born. And he still had fairly close relatives who were still Donatists. Uh, so uh, you had that, that tension. I don't know if that, expl- that answers your question, but feel free to answer more, to us more.
0: <laughs> your description of the rigorous moral tendencies in North African Christianity is reminding me of the much earlier Christian writer Tertullian, who was also a North African and was telling Christians to forsake the theaters don't go to gladiatorial combat uh, be cautious about who you buy furniture for from um, uh, you could go to school but you probably shouldn't teach school Uh, that he certainly seems to be an exemplar of this pattern that you're talking about
1: yes yes that appears constantly in north africa christianity and some of it is going to move into uh latin christianity um so that you have in Latin Christianity that kind of tendency. In many cases, you know, uh, you stay away from anything that that uh, might uh, uh, defile you, uh, and and the list of things that defile you is uh, rather long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, yes, uh, Tertullian was the first person. Well, there's another one that may uh, may dispute that place this. He was really the first person. As in the church to write in Latin. And the other one was also an African. So.
0: <laughs> Did North African Christianity have the same interest and, I guess, enthusiasm for monasticism that you see in Egypt with uh, people like Athanasius writing his, uh, his life of St. Anthony of the Desert, things like that?
1: Not so much, not so much, because uh, well, what happens in North Africa... I mean, in in Egypt, is uh, you have a sort of flight to the desert. Actually, the word anchorite, which we use today to refer to somebody who lives out there alone, uh, originally meant fugitive. (laughs) So uh, anybody who was a fugitive from the law was an (laughs) anchorite. And and these people uh, went to the desert because they were fleeing from society, because society has now become uh, you know, uh, corrupted. Uh, I mean, society has always been corrupted, but now the church have been society, united with that society, and they want to be out of it. I think you have the same tendency in North Africa, except in North Africa, it doesn't turn out to be mysticism. It tends to be a sort of a militant separatism. The, the monks in, in Egypt never uh, broke with the organized church. They had difficulties with it, and one or two were fairly strange, but they never became a movement against the organized uh, church, the hierarchical church. In North Africa, they did. In North Africa, what happens is you get entire communities that refuse to accept the authority of the church as it's now taking shape under under Roman uh, power. So... uh, you have you don't have the same thing. As a matter of fact, uh, the the monastic uh, movement that de- develops in Africa is uh, in North Africa, meaning west of of Egypt, is uh, uh, fairly small. And uh, one of his leaders is Augustine himself, who creates a sort of community not because he wants to be a monk, but because he's he has he's buying into the old uh, Greek. Uh, a philosophical tradition that the best life is the idle life of the philosopher, and you do that in a community of people that talk with you about philosophy. And Augustine's dream was to be able to spend his life uh, with his uh, small group of people that he had gathered uh, until he was pulled out of that by the by being ordained, and then he. One of the things that he required of the bishop before he would be ordained was that he be allowed to create a similar community in Hippo where he was going to be a bishop. So you don't have that kind of, you don't have monasticism in that sense of going to the desert in uh, in Western North Africa. You eventually get it first in in the Roman world because uh, people are traveling back and forth and. Uh, bringing uh, Eastern monasticism into the the Western church.
0: So what do we know about Augustine growing up as a mestizo? I teach at Houston Baptist University, a, a, a really diverse university in a really diverse city. And for a lot of my students, they're growing up between two cultures. So what experiences did Augustine have that my students also with similar experiences, could identify with?
1: Well, uh, we uh, we know very little about uh, uh, the actual thought of Augustine really as he was growing up, except what he tells us ourselves, himself. Uh, uh, His confessions are the first uh, uh, spiritual autobiography that we have. So he's he's, uh, breaking new ground, and there he tells you about his growing up. He doesn't say much about hardly anything about about that experience. He doesn't even tell us who uh, what the background of his friends were was. But as you look at the the names, whose, whose, the, the, I mean the friends whose names we know, they were all Roman. So again, you have the impression that as what happens so often in other mestizo cultures, as as happens very often wherever you have immigrants communi- immigrant communities in this country. Uh, apparently, his parents and probably his mother agrees with that. Are trying to make sure that he grow up, grows up as Roman as possible. So th- that's one thing that seems uh, fairly clear. The, uh, he, uh, his friends that he plays with, the, the, the friends that are going to be his dear friends for life. The people that he are, are people who are basically of Roman culture. Uh, th- that's about as far as we can go about growing up that way. Now, I suppose <laughs> if it's like growing up in Texas, I suppose that the the words that he most learned in in uh, the native language of the Berbers were all the cur- all the curse words.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Well, I'd like to turn now to the ways Augustine's mestizo experience shaped his ministry as a pastor and a theologian. You argue that Augustine drew on the resources of his diverse cultural and theological heritages to deal with crises in the church. What are some examples of that?
1: Well, uh, look, for instance, at the Donatist controversy. What happens at that point, just as the story is usually told, is that uh, the, there's a system after the persecutions end uh, because the, some people in North Africa insist that they, were, they had not fallen during the persecution, and the only people whose uh, ordination is valid are those who did not fall during the persecution, and anybody who is in communion with anybody who uh, fell according to the way they tell the story uh, is also fallen, and so every other Christian church is invalid because they're in communion with these people, and we we are the ones who really have the authority because we did not fall. Now, that is very, very similar to what I was telling you earlier about how uh, authority does not depend on uh, on function, but, but on the manner that put it in, does not depend on, on position, but in the manner in which you function in that position. So that a king is a king or a leader is a leader, until another leader comes to stronger and can do better. Uh, and at that point, uh, the, the, uh, it's, there's no sense of usurpation. It's just the way that history moves, and that's the way societies work. And now the old kings have to be set aside or, because there's a new one who is more efficient. Well, that is translated then to the, to the same question of holiness. Uh, uh, a person's uh, position in church does not depend on what they were named, whether they're, whether they're the ordination who, who made them a bishop, it depends particularly on how faithful they have been. If they are not absolutely faithful the way I understand them to be faithful, they are wrong and, and they no longer have authority. Now, that's a bit of a caricature, but that's basically what is going on in, among the Donatist movement in North Africa. At that point, Augustine draws on Roman law and Roman tradition where a person is an authority because they have been put in authority by the law and by proper authorities. So that uh, uh, a bishop is a bishop and his uh, ordinations are valid and the sacraments of those of them by them are valid, not because of who they are, but simply because of the action of God through these people. So a donatist would say when a priest who is not... uh, the worthy, offers the sacrament, the sacrament is not valid. Augustine would say, when a priest who's not worthy, if he is a proper authority, his sacrament is valid. Obviously, the pastoral reason for that is that you cannot live your whole life wondering whether the baptism you received was good because the person who baptized you was good or not, and you cannot begin wondering about whether communion that you're taking is your communion because of the worthiness or unworthiness of the one who gives it to you. So what Augustine does in that case is he draws on Roman law, and he talks about the church on the basis of that system of authority. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't think that people who misbehave should be deposed. They should be, but they should be deposed by proper authority, not by somebody who simply says, oh, you're not holy enough. Now, that that happens during that controversy. Then you look at the Pelagian controversy, where it's a different matter. Now the whole principle of Roman law has moved into the church in such a way that there's a tendency uh, to turn God into the adjudicator of rewards for what you did or what you didn't do. Uh, God is above all a lawgiver and and lawgiver. God is going to do whatever the law says. God is God is uh, practically uh, uh, limited by by uh, the notion that God is fair and just and so on. And Augustine comes and says, "No. Uh, God gives grace to whomever God pleases, uh, and uh, you may agree with that or not, but that's what Augustine says. And he says that because." Uh, he his god is very much like that ancient african uh leader or chief or whatever who has authority because uh, uh, i mean there is no law about them uh, they are the ones who by acting in a certain way make the law and and, and so uh, the fact that god decides that some people are going to be uh Saved out of the rest of humanity, who which is a mass of perdition, that is God's business, and I cannot simply say, "Well, that cannot be possible because God is just," which is what the Pelagian said. So, so you get the part, in, during that controversy, part of what's happening is that he's now drawing on a very different notion of of what authority is than he did when he was dealing with the Donatists. Uh, the, the, now he's looking at God with the, with the same understanding of authority that a Berber would look at the understanding of authority and not the way a Roman would look at the understanding of authority.
0: So that Augustine's theology of grace has to do with a Berber chief's right to be generous as he wills and not follow some Roman law of rewards and punishments?
1: That's right exactly exactly-hmm and obviously from the point of view of uh, the Romans that makes God capricious and unreliable <laughs> so you you have there you see and I'm, I'm not I don't think, I'm not saying that he said now nah, let me see if here I draw from my African background I can say this I just say that the way that he is responding to these various issues I is by bringing resources that he has from his own double background.
0: So this is not conscious culture code-switching on his part, you'd say?
1: No, I don't think so. I don't think so. But it happens even at the end. I mean, at the end, when he—not after not quite at the end, but after the fall of the of, of Rome, the sack of Rome in 410 and so on, when he's writing uh, The City of God— uh, He can do what no real Roman would do. Mm -hmm. He can make a contrast, a a very radical contrast between the city of God and the human city, which obviously uh, the the incarnation of the human city in his time is Rome and the Roman system, the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. And while Jerome is over there in in Palestine bemoaning that the Roman has fallen, uh, Augustine is saying, well, now why did Rome fall? And 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 then he starts talking about uh, uh, the reason why God, Rome uh, fell was because, after all, Rome is uh, just one more incarnation of this uh, earthly city that's based on self-love. Uh, 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 he can do that because he is somewhat detached from Rome.
0: I'm interested in how the rigor of his mother's North African Christianity stuck with Augustine. Do you think that's what attracted him to manichaeanism? It it seemed to have some of the same moral tone as that north african christianity but without the uh, additional beliefs that the educated roman augustine seemed to think were sort of silly and, and and incredible at that point in his life.
1: That's right. Yeah. Actually, <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: the way he understood Manichaeism made it very positive to him because it seemed to be at first like it embodied the sort of strict morality of his mother taking it even beyond that uh, but at the same time it made sense, at least it claimed to make sense Mm -hmm. and what eventually makes him leave Manichaeism behind is that he decides that the claims uh, of making sense uh, by Manichaeism were false. And uh, what happens is that somehow he now begins making, uh, he now begins developing a sense that uh, the problem that he had with intellectual problems that he had with his mother's religion are solved much better. With the Greco Roman background that he also has. And in some ways, that's what Augustine, I mean, what Ambrose helps him to do. He goes to the cathedral in Milan to hear Ambrose preach because he teaches, I mean, here, Augustine teaches uh, rhetoric and uh, he wants to see um, hear this man who's famous for his speeches. And then he suddenly discovers that the way that this man is interpreting the Bible. Uh, uh, matches uh, not only on the one hand uh, what Monica had told him but particularly uh, the need for him to find intellectual solution to some of the problems that he had with the problem of evil and so on.
0: That's really fascinating to me because it seems as if even when he was living in a way that was the opposite of what his mother's North African Christian standards were that he always felt the urge to live up to those standards uh, even if he didn't hold the beliefs that made those standards intelligible he he still felt that th- those were the standards to reach uh, even if uh, by means of another philosophy or another faith
1: yes that's right that's right um no question about that i think that that what happens uh well what happens in the in the process of his conversion and eventually leads to the famous passive event at the garden in Milan? What happens is that he now finds it possible to uphold his mother's religion uh, within the Greek or Roman culture. And then, but then now he still cannot become a Christian because the way he understands, precisely because of his mother's background, to become a Christian is practically to become an ascetic. He he needs to go ahead and 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 get rid of all of these uh, uh, worldly things and so on. And the way to do that is uh, by becoming somewhat of an ascetic, or at least becoming uh, you know, a sort of a a Christian philosopher and so on. And he does that by I mean that's what happens in the Garden of Milan. What happens in the Garden of Milan is finally says this is what I'm going to do and And now he can he can be the sort of ascetic contemplative person that his mother would have liked him to be but to be to do that as a philosopher
0: Let's turn to your conclusion in it, you consider Augustine as a lens for Western Christianity. How does Augustine's perspective as a cultural and theological mestizo shape how the Western church sees
1: well. <laughs> Obviously, there's no Western theologian that has been more influential than Augustine. And uh, it is very difficult for any Western Christian to read St. Paul without reading him through the lens of Augustine. Uh, we forget that when Augustine was arguing against Pelagius on the interpretation of Paul, Pelagius had written a very good, excellent, very uh, erudite commentary on the epistles of Paul. Uh, so there was a different interpretation of Paul also going on. Uh, but, na- but now we tend to be, we, we don't even see the possibility of interpreting Paul in any way that is not through Augustine. <laughs> and by the way, now we, uh, Protestants interpret uh, Augustine through the eyes of Luther and Calvin. That's another matter. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, uh, <laughs> well, I could go more into that. Part of what's happening here is you have a whole... Uh, struggle for the past. Everybody is claiming the past that has become canonical is, is claim, and the, Paul's uh, fight with uh, the non-Christian Jews who, uh, who are against him is about who owns the, the Hebrew Scriptures, and uh, and the August the uh, fight of, of Augustine with Pelagius is about who owns Paul, and uh, we have decided because of the influence of of Augustine is that. Augustine owns Paul, and Augustine is the best way to understand Paul. So, what happens? What consequences will all of that have? Well, it means the Christianity that comes out of uh, Augustine mixed very soon, already beginning to be mixed in Augustine's time, in Augustine himself, with uh, the view of uh, law as the uh, law and order as the ultimate authority develops a Christianity in the West that's very much concerned about uh, right and wrong, sin and reward or punishment. Uh, That's why in the West the question of of sins are committed after baptism becomes so crucial because uh, it is all about what I owe God and and how do I pay what I owe God and all that. And I think that even Augustine doesn't quite go that way. Augustine leans that way. Uh, you, not when you compare him with uh, with uh, Calvin or Luther, but when, certainly when you compare him with Eastern theologians, um, uh, uh, you see this uh, this strong legalistic uh, almost accounting system. Uh, ju- just to give you one example. we we talk about uh, Augustine's influence on grace and salvation is by grace. When you read Augustine, eh, what he says is that grace gives you the power to do the good works that gives you the merits. So eventually you are really saved by the merits that you do because of grace. And and we Protestants tend to forget that. So that's one side of Augustine. We tend to emphasize the other side about the grace. And, And I think that part of what's happening is that in Augustine, all of that comes together and all of that is passed on to Uh, Western Christianity. To which obviously already by the time of Augustine and very soon after that is is being added a very strong Germanic background uh, of uh, all the Germanic tribes that are now invading the Roman Empire and are eventually going to become uh, dominant in in, in Western Europe. But that's another matter.
0: (laughs) You emphasize in your book how engaging with the Church of the Past can give insight for the church of the present. How can recognizing Augustine as a mestizo thinker encourage Christians today, especially in this increasingly diverse American setting that we exist in?
1: Well, I think uh, uh, not Augustine, but the whole history of the church uh, uh, encourages us to realize that in many ways the growth uh, both of the faith and of culture does not take place mostly where culture is pure, but mostly where it mixes with another. That uh, we tended you—you you would have thought uh, that uh, the place where great thought was going to take place in the Roman world was uh, uh, in Roman, in Rome, but it wasn't. Late, uh, well, how much of the New Testament was written in Jerusalem? Nothing. It's all written at the the borders, at the edge, where Christianity is encountering new issues and new people. And uh, what happens is there's always a tendency for the mestizo to forget that they are mestizo. Uh, 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 You know, precisely because Monica wanted her son to be a Greco Roman and to move in the Greek Roman world. And that happens constantly. And so eventually, when the blend emerges, to the point that it becomes normative, then you forget that you're mestizo. And then uh, you are not able to, to be open to other mestizas that are happening right around you and to which you are invited. So that I think that looking at uh, Augustine and realizing that the, the normative theology of Western Christianity uh, has that that character in it, uh, should help us today in all the dialogues that are emerging because of uh, that mixture you're talking about. And obviously that, that has to do both with religion and theology on the one hand and with culture and society on the other. Uh, because part of what's happening today, as you very well know, is that uh, there is a bemoaning of uh, these encounters that you're describing. And there are people who say, well, we have to keep uh, those who are different outside because they don't belong with us, because they're going to change who we are. Well, if we don't change who we are, we're not getting anywhere.
0: On Christian Humanist Profiles, we let our guests have the last word. So what would you like our listeners to consider about our topic as we finish this conversation?
1: Well, I think what I would like them to consider is what I just said, that first of all, that they realize their own mestizaje, and secondly, that whether they claim it and they see the value of it, and that then they begin figuring out what sort of messiah has God is calling us unto today. Uh, so that instead of thinking in terms of uh, uh, purity, uh, in the sense of just being exactly the same way as my father and my mother were, and going all the way back to generations, right, and thinking in those terms, thinking about. What is God doing uh, mixing us up with all these other people? <laughs> and, and, and how we open, and what does it mean, and how we understand the gospel, and how, what does it mean about how we organize society, and so on? So uh, to me, Augustine is uh, the, the, well, obviously my interest in Augustine for other reasons, but uh, but this particular book is basically just trying to say, hey, look at this. If you probe into reality in this particular thing, you make a probe into this importance of this great man who was Augustine, uh, you see something that's very relevant for today. But if you want the very, very last word, I suppose the very last word is either Amen or Maranatha.
0: <laughs> well, dear listeners, that's all we have time for today. I've enjoyed this conversation. I thank you for coming on to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Gonzalez.
1: Well, thank you very much.
0: We've been talking today with Dr. Justo Gonzalez, author of The Mestizo Augustine: A Theologian Between Two Cultures, uh, put out by IVP Academic. There will be a link to that book's website on our blog, christianhumanist.org, so be looking for that. You can make comments on this episode in the comments section of that blog post at christianhumanist.org. You can also send us an email at theChristianHumanist@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Or you can post on our Facebook wall. You can like us on Facebook. We appreciate that. You can also, if iTunes is the way that you access to Christian Humanist Profiles, you can give us good reviews. It's one of the ways you can help more people find us. In the meanwhile, I'm David Grubbs. I've been your host for this Christian Humanist Profiles. Christian Humanist Profiles is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our editor is Brit Stack. Be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.